my name's Ben, and I'll be reading the Bible for us today. Uh, today, we're going to be continuing our series uh, in Exodus, and we'll be picking it up uh, where we left off, starting at Exodus uh, chapter 2, verse 11, and the first reading will finish in chapter 3, verse 10. Now, this continues straight off uh, from where we left off last week. Uh, so last week, we saw... Uh, how in the midst of some pretty challenging circumstances, God uh, was true and faithful to his promises and we saw him working out one promise in particular, uh, which was to make Israel into a great nation. Uh, But one of the big promises uh, that God had made to Abraham back in Genesis 12, uh, we hadn't really seen any evidence of that being fulfilled. And that promise uh, was to bring... Israel or Abraham and his descendants uh, to the promised land and the moment they're still stuck in Egypt. So Exodus chapter 2, starting at verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labour. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I've done must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Reuel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Reuel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter, Zipporah, to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush, Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. 
When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them uh, from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And we're going to be reading from Exodus chapter 3, verse 11 to chapter 4, verse 18. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, 
throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now, put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who, made them de- who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you to speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please, send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother, Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he'll be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to people, the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth, and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so that you can perform the signs with it. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Thanks, Ben. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, your word is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. So uh, we pray this morning, give us courage and confidence to walk in the ways that you would have us, trusting in your very, very good promises. Amen. Alrighty, well, can I ask you please to keep your Bibles open back at Exodus chapter 2 on page 79. We're going to spend some time in those uh, three chapters that Ben read out to us. Not every verse, but it will be good for you to have it there. Uh, And also grab the handout that you were given as you came in. You'll see on the inside, as usual, reasonably detailed outline that will help make sense of this talk. I've tried to break what is a long passage down into something that's a little more manageable. Uh, You'll see on the top left of your handout uh, there, the diagram. Uh, It's a reminder of what we saw last week as we began our time in this book of Exodus. Uh, Last week we saw how God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, promise of a land, a great nation and a blessing, 
So how those promises shape the whole Bible, and uh, we talked about how, therefore, we belong to a bigger and better story. Uh, by the time we come to Exodus, in the second book of the Bible, uh, Abraham's descendants are in Egypt, and they're on their way to becoming a great nation. Uh, there's now 600,000 men, plus women and children, uh, but they've been reduced to slavery under Pharaoh's brutal oppression. Uh, he has ordered the death of every Hebrew baby boy in an attempt to wipe their name out from the face of the earth. Incredibly, one boy survives, that's Moses. He gets adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and he grows up as a prince of Egypt. And so, in many ways, there's a lot riding on Moses. Uh, which brings us then to the question for today. Uh, the question for today is this, uh, who is Moses and where does he belong? Where does he belong? Is he really going to be at home in Pharaoh's palace, pampered in luxury, whilst his people are slaves? If you look on your handout, you'll see on the left-hand side, uh, up the top, a short passage from Hebrews 11. Uh, this is from the New Testament. This is how a writer later reflects on Moses. Hebrews 11, verse 24, let me read it out. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Uh, today, we see Moses at the start of that journey. And as we walk with him, it's going to ask the same question of us. Where do we belong? Well, point one on your handout there, an identity crisis. An identity crisis, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Uh, things go downhill pretty fast for Moses, actually. Uh, we're told, verse 11, if you look with me, verse 11, one day uh, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labour. And notice it explicitly says in verse 11 to where his own people were. Uh, we're not told uh, how or where he was of what was going on outside the palace walls, but he's still identified as one of the Hebrews. In fact, verse 11 goes on to reiterate the point. Uh, verse 11, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. My guess is that Moses felt guilty about his privileged status. Uh, and so impulsively, somewhat recklessly, he takes matters into his own hands and he kills the Egyptian slave master. But it backfires spectacularly, because in verses 13 and 14, uh, we discover two things. Firstly, it turns out the Hebrews aren't particularly grateful to Moses. I mean, has he actually done anything or made any difference to their plight, or has he just eased his own conscience? And the second thing, verse 14, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. Well, what do you think we're meant to make of Moses so far? Uh, let's be fair, uh, he has saved a fellow Hebrew from a beating. But given his miraculous rescue at birth, given his upbringing in the corridors of power, you can't help but think that, well, surely God had more in mind for him. Maybe, for example, maybe, maybe God would use him to rescue an entire nation from slavery. Except now he has to flee. And so he escapes to Midian. And in verses 15 through 22, uh, we actually get this rather forlorn picture of Moses. He sits down at a well, uh, presumably, I, I guess, to get a drink. But my guess is that he's probably feeling pretty sorry for himself as he contemplates just how far he has fallen. Now, the thing is, you and I, we've read Genesis. So we know the bigger and better story that we belong to. We know, having read Genesis, that actually wells 
Well, worlds are quite significant. In fact, you might say worlds were the ancient world's equivalent of nightclubs and dating apps. Because basically, it's where you went if you wanted to pick up. So, it's how Isaac found Rebecca. Uh, it's where Jacob met Rachel. And so we're thinking, uh-huh, I know where this story is going next. Sure enough, what happens is that Moses meets a local girl. They marry, settle down, have kids. He joins his father-in-law's business tending sheep. All of which, to be honest, again, just feels a bit mundane. A little bit ho-hum. I mean, surely God had bigger things in store for Moses. But what's more, his wife, Zipporah, uh, we're told, verse 16, she's the daughter of a priest of Midian. A priest of Midian. Now, that's important because Moses, we know, is a Levite. He's the son of a Levite man and a Levite woman. We readers know that the Levites will eventually become the priests in Israel. So, by marrying the daughter of a priest from another religion, it feels like Moses has completely renounced his Hebrew identity. In fact, if you turn over the page, verse 22, verse 22, Exodus chapter 2, verse 22, we're told that he names his son Gershom. Gershom. Now, if you note, there's a footnote there for A down the bottom. It says, Gershom sounds like the Hebrew for a foreigner there. Because, verse 22, Moses says, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Is that extraordinary? Every time he says his son's name, every time he calls to Gershom, he's going to be reminded that he didn't belong in Egypt and he doesn't belong here either. Well, here comes the twist. Uh, here comes the twist. We're going to zoom out from Moses as he languishes in exile in far-off Midian. And we're going to return to the Israelites, his own people, still enslaved in Egypt. Has anything changed? Well, point two on your handout then. God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Pick it up with me in verse 23. I'm going to read chapter 2, 23 through 25 again. Verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Well, this is the first time in the book of Exodus that we're told that God's people, verse 23, cried out and their cry for help went up to God. As a result, verse 24, God hears their groaning, he remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so verse 25, God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. We're being told, I think, our prayers do make a difference. Now, even though to outward appearances nothing has changed, God has heard their groans. God has remembered his promises to their ancestors. And because God always keeps his promises, he is moved to act. Now, in one sense, it raises a question. And the question is there on your handout. The question is this why did it take God so long to intervene? Why did it take God so long to intervene? Verse 23 talks about a long period. According to Acts chapter 7, which I've printed there for you on your handout, 40 years have actually passed. Moses is in Midian for 40 years. And given that means Moses is now 80, according to Exodus 7, again there on your handout, 
And because the Israelites were enslaved even before Moses was born, it means that nearly a century has passed. So, why did God take so long to intervene? Well, to put it slightly differently, when verse 24 says God remembered His covenant, is the implication that He'd somehow forgotten in the meantime? Let me say that the Bible never fully, never suggests that God is forgetful or absent-minded or gets distracted. But neither does it ever try to fully explain his timing. For myself, I wonder if the delay was to give Moses time to grow up. See, Moses now, he's no longer a hot-headed youth who recklessly kills an Egyptian slave master, which, you know, to be fair, that's a courageous act. And it's great for the one slave that he has rescued, but it's done nothing to liberate an entire nation. So maybe now, after his upbringing in the king's palace, maybe now Moses has learnt both privilege and patience. Maybe 40 years tending sheep in the middle of nowhere has taught him some humility. Maybe now Moses is ready to be used by God for his purposes when God does call on him. Which is what happens next. Point three then, God calls Moses. Chapter three, verses one through ten, bottom left of your handout. We've moved here from Pharaoh's son to Jethro's shepherd. And yet even in exile, we're told Moses is a foreigner in a foreign land. He is still an outcast. Do you notice verse 1 of chapter 3? Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness. How symbolic. He really is in the middle of nowhere. The thing is, there'll be no quiet, easy retirement for Moses. Because one day, we're told, verse 1, he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, once again, we readers who know our bigger and better story, this puts us on full alert because another word for Horeb, printed there on your handout, is Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. And that's going to become important later. It's brought us at this point then to the burning bush, or more accurately, the not burning bush. That's the whole point about it. Because at this moment, God is going to speak to Moses directly and he's going to call him into his service. Now, what are we meant to make of the not burning bush? Now, let me say a couple of things. Firstly, the sign of the not burning bush, it's about more than just the discovery of a non-depletable, fully renewable energy source. The not burning bush, it's what's called a theophany. A theophany. I've printed the word there for you on your handout. A theophany is just a technical word for a visible manifestation of God, an appearance of God himself, as God quite literally steps into our world. Now, can I say that, for the record, like every theophany in the Bible, it's utterly terrifying and completely overwhelming. Oftentimes, uh, as a pastor, I hear people who aren't Christian but who are trying to work out Christian things, I hear them say, genuinely, I think, if only God appeared to me, then I believe in Him. Uh, to which 
I want to gently reply, sure, by all means, ask him to, but be careful what you wish for. Verse 6, we're told, Moses is so afraid, he hides his face. He hides his face, which I think is meant to be both a sobering reminder and also some comic relief. I mean, as if putting your hands over your eyes is going to make God instantly disappear. Well, it's also deeply reassuring. It's reassuring, I think, in Moses' example, to realise that you and I, we don't have to have it all worked out before God can use us. Uh, As we're going to see, Moses both was and continues to be far from perfect. Well, God warns Moses that he's standing on holy ground and notice the first thing that he says to him, verse 6, pick it up with me uh, in verse 6. Don't come any closer, take off your sandals, the place on which you're standing is holy ground. Verse 6, then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That is, the first thing that God says to Moses when he appears to him is, I've not forgotten my people, and I've not forgotten my promises. God is saying to Moses, you are part of a bigger and better story. And so, what I'd like you to do is try and imagine Moses' reaction as God goes on to explain why he has appeared before him. This is in verses 7 through 9. Now, just follow along with me, verse 7, and try and imagine what Moses is thinking as God speaks to him. Verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. Just pause for a moment. I reckon Moses is thinking, that's good. That's a good start. Okay? Verse 8, God continues, so I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them in up out of that land into a good and spacious land. A land flowing with milk and honey at the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. Again, pause. What's Moses thinking? Moses thinking, great, God's going to do something about it. He goes on, verse 9. God says, and now the cry of the Israelites have reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing. At this point, I'm talking Moses going, fantastic. Because everything so far is about what God is going to do. I have seen, he says, I have heard, I have come down. Then, of course, we get verse 10. Verse 10, so now, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And at this point, of course, Moses just goes, hang on a minute. (laughs) You're what? You're sending me? Why? Like, why does it have to be me? So what's he going to do? Or to come back to our opening question, where does Moses belong? Because he fled the palace in Egypt. Will he now return from the land of Midian to his own people? Point four then, what will Moses do? Right hand side of your handout, this brings us to the second reading that Ben brought to us, chapter 3 verses 11 through 4.17. What's Moses going to do? Well, short version, and it was apparent in the way in which it was read, Moses is far from enthusiastic. Uh, He actually comes up with five objections, what I've labelled five ways to try to say no to God. 
It's not going to be very successful, but he's going to try. They're each listed there for you on the handout, so you can see them. Let me say something about each of them very briefly. First answer, first response Moses gives, but I'm nobody. But I'm nobody. Pick it up in chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I guess that's what's going through Moses' mind is that he's thinking, well, do you know what, God? Years ago, I tried to stand up for your people and that didn't get far. In fact, it got, almost got me killed. So what difference can little old me make this time around? Now, I want you to see God's reply to Moses because it's astonishing. Look at his reply, verse 12. So God said... I will be with you. I will be with you. God makes no comment about Moses' ability, his suitability or his capability. God gives no inspirational pep talk to Moses at this point. You know, he doesn't say, oh, but Moses, you're so strong and capable. He doesn't say, oh, Moses, you can do anything if you just set your mind to it. And he doesn't say, oh, but Moses, you grew up in the palace. So if anyone can talk sense into Pharaoh, surely it's you. None of that. God's only response, I will be with you. And that'll be enough. Second objection that Moses comes up with. But I don't know your name, God. But I don't know your game. This is name. This is verses 13 through 22. Verse 13. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? Then what do I tell them? Okay, at this point, Moses is doing a bit of scenario planning. Yeah, he says to God, okay, God, let's say I go to the Israelites, and I'm not promising anything just yet, but let's say I go to them. What happens when I tell them the God of your fathers has sent me to you? Notice that your fathers, not our fathers, the God of your fathers sent me to you. What happens when they reply, and quite reasonably, to be honest, because I've been gone for 40 years, what happens when they reply, oh, okay, what's his name then? Now, it's possible that at the time the Israelites kept the name of God secret so that they could use it to weed out imposters. That's possible what's, what's going on here. It's also possible, I think, that the Israelites have, to be frank, given up on God. That They'll say, why would we ever believe you, Moses, when God has done nothing to set us free after nearly a century? Well, once again, God's reply is astonishing. And actually, I'm going to dwell on this for just a minute or two, because it's one of those really significant parts of the Bible. Come with me to verse 14. Verse 14. God said to Moses... I am who I am. This is what you say to the Israelites. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, let me acknowledge, I realize just how strange this sounds. When asked, what's his name? The response is, I am who I am. Now, literally, he's saying, I am me. Or for the syntax Nazis here, I am I. That's technically what he's saying. I am I. God is saying, he just is. 
God is saying that He is pre-existent, that He is self-sufficient, that He is entirely complete in and of Himself. Uh, To use the vocabulary that the New Testament will use in Revelation chapter 1, God is and was and is to come, the Almighty. If you're trying to wrap your head around what it means just for God to be, well, if you want an illustration, here's one. How about a not burning bush? Something that has no external energy source, but is entirely self-sustaining in every way. Now, to talk about names, of course, the contrast in the name, between the name of God and between our names couldn't be more apparent. So, as you know, my name is Jeffrey Lynn. My name tells you something about me. Uh, the Lynn part tells you about where I come from. So, even though clearly I don't sound it, I'm obviously Chinese to some degree. The Jeffrey, well, the Jeffrey tells you something about my parents, about what they hoped for me when they chose my name. Do you know that the word Jeffrey just means God's peace? I'm so tranquil and serene, aren't I, in so many ways. Clearly they failed in that one. When God says, I am who I am, or I am I, what it means is that God is not named by another because no word could properly describe him or do justice to him. And because none are before him, and none are greater than him. When God says, I am who I am, he is saying he acts entirely of his own accord. There is no outside influence or pressure brought to bear on God. He is in every way self-defined, without reference to anyone or anything. And I get that the suggestion that God is completely autonomous, totally unconstrained, I get that that could make us nervous. I mean, what if he chose to act arbitrarily or capriciously? The upside, though, is that when this God makes a promise, nothing can stop him from keeping it. See, for this God, his will will be done. His kingdom will come. And his name will be hallowed throughout all the earth. At this point, God sketches out for Moses what's going to happen when he does return to Egypt. Uh, In fact, there's a sense of inevitability about what's going to take place. Uh, Just pick it up with me in verses 18 through 22, chapter 3. Verses 18 through 22, let me read this out. God says, The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders will go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt won't let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I'll stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I'll perform among them. After that, he'll let you go. And I'll make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you won't go empty-handed." Every woman is to ask her neighbour and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you'll put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. God knows that Pharaoh won't let the Israelites go. 
He won't give up his slaves that easily. So God himself will intervene directly. But God also knows that ultimately the Egyptians will be so keen to be rid of the Israelites that they'll actually send them off with articles of silver and gold and fine clothing. God is saying that when he promises to rescue his people and to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey, it won't just be the bare minimum by the skin of their teeth. They won't just be refugees fleeing with nothing but the clothes on their backs. God, he will exceed their expectations in every way. Because this is a God who can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Can I just say, as an aside, in the history of the world, there has never been an end to slavery like this. Well, back to Moses' objections. We've seen the first two, the last three, very quickly. Third objection there on your handout on the right-hand side. But what if your people don't believe me? What if your people don't believe me? And again, I've emphasised your because that's what Moses says. Uh, Naturally, of course, we don't expect the Egyptians are going to cooperate. They're not going to give up their slaves lightly. But what about the Israelites? Will they believe Moses? And so in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 4, we see God give Moses three signs to convince them. Uh, The staff into a snake, the leprous hand in the cloak, the blood in the Nile. It's actually an allusion to a theme that we're going to see in the weeks ahead. That at, at the end of the day, the Israelites were no better or more deserving than Egypt. But still, God shows them grace upon grace. Moses' fourth objection there on your handout, starting to get a bit absurd, but I don't like public speaking. Uh, He's sort of clutching his straws at this point, isn't he? I mean, if God gave Moses his tongue, surely he can give him the right words to speak. Until finally, the last one there, number five, last objection, oh God, please just send someone else. I mean, anyone but me, quite frankly. And I, you know, like we sort of laugh, but haven't we all felt that at times? And yes, we want God to be glorified. We want his will to be done. We want his name to be hallowed. But does he have to drag me into it? Things are just fine. Can't you leave me alone? God replies, well, okay, I'll send Aaron to help you. This is mind-blowing, actually. Look at verse 14. Chapter 4, verse 14. The Lord's anger burned against Moses. He said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you. He's already on his way to meet you. Isn't that extraordinary? Apparently God knew it would come to this. Which really just tells us that if it's all going to be up to Moses, the Israelites are in a lot of trouble. So what will Moses do? Point five on your handout. Moses returns to his own people in Egypt. In Egypt. Verse 18, chapter 4, read it with me. Chapter 18, verse 4. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, said to him, let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. And Jethro said, go, and I wish you well. 
Moses will return to his own people in Egypt because Moses belongs within God's promises. And next week, we're going to see the confrontation. Uh, But in the meantime, just as we wrap up, so what for us? So what for us? What does this story mean for us today? What's the application? A couple of things, each of which are printed on your handout there. Firstly, God uses weak vessels to achieve his purposes. God uses weak vessels to achieve his purposes. Remember the question with which I began today? Uh, Where do you belong? Where do you belong? I wonder if you feel undeserving, as if our many failings disqualify us from God's service. If that's how you feel, then can I ask you to consider Moses? Moses, almost killed as a baby, a homeless refugee as an adult, Even in his twilight years, he is clearly racked by doubt and insecurity. And yet, God is not finished with him. God can still use Moses to achieve his purposes. That's true. Moses would go on to become Israel's greatest leader. Later, he'll be described as a prophet unsurpassed in Israel. As someone who spoke with God face to face, at times even bargained with him. In fact, Moses is called God's friend. But make no mistake, he is still far from perfect. In fact, Moses is deeply flawed to the very end. He is forbidden from entering the promised land because of his ongoing disobedience. And actually, one of the most poignant moments in the whole Bible is when Moses dies on another mountaintop peering into an inheritance that he cannot collect. So I want to say today how reassuring it is to know that little old you and me, we don't have to have it all worked out before God can use us weak vessels to achieve his purposes. Because we belong to him, even in our weaknesses. What we learn from Exodus 2 through 4 is that the God of glory works in us and through us, sometimes even despite us. He uses us in all our inadequacies and imperfections, all our flaws and failings, all our sin and shortcomings. Because as he does, it declares to the whole world, it is not about us. It's all about him and his power which is so graciously at work in us who believe look with me 2 corinthians 4 verse 7 through 10 i printed there for you on your handout this is the apostle paul actually reflecting on moses life he says we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from god and not from us we are hard pressed on every side but not crushed perplexed but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed. God uses weak vessels to achieve his purposes. Second and final application, what promises of God have been precious for you? What promises of God have been precious for you? 
You see, no matter what you've done, like Moses, no matter what the world might do to you, like the Israelites enslaved in Egypt, still, we belong to God's promises. And so what I want to urge you for this week ahead is to remember that the only certainty which can sustain us are those very precious promises. What God has done in the past is what guarantees what He is doing now and what He will bring to completion in the future. Because the great I Am always keeps His Word. And everything that He has begun in Christ, it will come to pass. Here's a few of those promises. They're printed there for you on your handout. They carry on in 2 Corinthians from the first passage. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or 2 Corinthians 12. God says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Or from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn, Christ, the first of the fruit, then when he comes, those who belong to him. We will rise, for Christ is the first fruit of the harvest to come. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your very precious promises. Thank you for all that you have committed to. Thank you that your word is unfailing. We pray that in this week ahead, you might enable us to fix our eyes firmly on Jesus, the one who is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. In whose name we pray. Amen.